I was acting. I was acting. And uh, Andre just said, Cherry, stop it. Just say it. Just say it. And of course, I remember when I just said it, the room got quiet and we all went somewhere together. This is Gurus, the story of acting. I'm Jeff Zinn. When I arrived at the American Repertory Theater Institute to study directing in 1988, Cherry Jones was already well-established as a founding member of the resident company. During her time there, she would play leading roles in more than two dozen productions, including King Lear, Three Sisters, As You Like It, The Serpent Woman, Life is a Dream, The Caucasian Chalk Circle, The Miser, Major Barbara, Love's Labor's Lost, and Twelfth Night. But Cherry was just getting started. From there, she went to New York and quickly became one of Broadway's most reliable leading ladies, winning Tony Awards for Doubt and The Heiress, and multiple awards and nominations for another dozen or so major roles, including The Glass Menagerie, Pride's Crossing, Angels in America, Moon for the Misbegotten, The Night of the Iguana, Our Country's Good, Mrs. Warren's Profession, and The Baltimore Waltz. She's appeared in multiple films, including Ocean's Eleven, Cradle Will Rock, The Horse Whisperer, The Perfect Storm, Erin Brockovich, and The Village. She's also well known for her roles in TV series as diverse as 24, where she played Madam President, and most recently as Logan Roy's rival on Succession. Here's my conversation with Cherry Jones. Hey! Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm really good. I'm so happy to be out of the country. <laughs> <laughs> our our crazy, horrible country. Our crazy pendulum swinging in the extreme country. Yeah. Yeah. You're in Prague, yes? I'm in Prague, and I'm, I'm working on an Isaac Asimov sci-fi. It's based on Asimov. Is, it, is that how you say it? Asimov? I think it's Asimov. That sounds right. Yeah. So it's a sci-fi thing. That's, that's so it's cool. it's a sci-fi thing. It's, it's actually their third season. Yeah, their second season hasn't aired yet. I had gotten some different scripts. and I hadn't been getting theater scripts. So a lot of the film and television scripts were so predictable. And I was sort of playing the, I call them the R lesbian pirate roles. <laughs> It would be more interesting if they were actually lesbian pilot, uh, pirate. But then I got this script, and I, I've never been a sci-fi person. I, I just never got into it. And I got this script, and I thought, this is so wildly creative. I want to go to that world in 25,589. What's the title? It's called Foundation. Oh, I love it. The- I love it. I know. So you've seen the series? I, no, absolutely. The I'm a, book. I'm, no, the the show, the series. Where? I'm a oh, follower. Oh <laughs> gosh! Oh, I'm excited I'm so, that you're in it. I'm so pleased. I'm oh so yeah. Pleased. No, it's good. It's really good. It, well, and they say the second season is going to be 
it's like huge step up from season one because they had so much to lay in you yeah. know, for season one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, I, I liked it so much that I think I downloaded the audio book and started listening. I think I listened to the audio book just to wow. c keep stay in that world because it was oh, so, wow. it was so interesting. I, ha I asked David Goyer, who's the, the creator and the showrunner and director and writer on it. I said, so how much of it, of this is Asimov and how much of it is you? And he said, well, honestly, probably 60% is me and 40%. You know, uh, is Asimov because, of course, right. to do something like this, he had to have license to, and his daughter, I think her name is Elizabeth Asimov, uh, is behind him. So that is good. There's some really good stuff going on now, and there's some really awful stuff, uh, mostly awful <laughs> stuff going, but there's so much stuff. You can find the good stuff. Listen, I'm a, I'm a big watcher. I'm a big TV guy. I can't help, you know, it's like- <laughs> I can't believe it, Jeff. Um, I still see you in 1982, and I wouldn't have thought of you as a big TV guy. I'm starting to get, because there is so much good stuff. Yeah. And that succession, I'm just like this to see what, I, I of course, I won't get it till Monday. Yeah. But uh, I can't wait to see. So just two more, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. You're such a strong presence in it. I mean, you're you only have three episodes. Are you barely that? <laughs> and yet, first of all, you establish yourself as a presence in it in your screen time, and then they're constantly talking about you, right? They're the you know there's yeah. Pierce this and Pierce that, anyway. yeah, and that so, old Count Crone. I think that at one point, Brian Cox calls me, calls him Pierce. Something well, like he's that. one to talk, right? I mean, if yeah, you, exactly. If anyone exactly. is halfway to the grave, Brian, may I ask you something? Have you ever had? Any communication or meetings with Logan Roy that I'm not aware of? What? Um, not, not in terms of... Are you, are you trying to figure out what your attorney would let you say? No. I have always acted... I have been rolled. I have been sandbagged. This is a good deal. You spoke to Logan on the 13th. What was the nature of that discussion? I do not recall. It could have been any number of... I would like your resignation. I don't appreciate being hustled. This is a good fucking deal. You won't get a deal like this again. It is a good deal, and I have never had anything in mind other than what's best for Pierce. Oh, horse potatoes. You work for Rhea Jarrell, and as long as our interests were aligned, it was fine. You'll be hearing from the lawyer. Hey, 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 I haven't finished. Good night to you both. Good riddance to bad rubbish. You turn this down, and you're fucking your whole family. Oh, I think my family will be fine, but thank you for your concern. Let's go. Hey, wait! We haven't finished. We haven't fucking finished. Do you hear me? We haven't hey, stop. By the way, it wasn't 82, it was 88 that I got to the ART. Oh. What was your first year there? My first year there was, I guess, the summer of 81. Okay. Uh, with As You Like It, which they had brought, uh, you know, because Bob was uh, bringing productions that he'd done at, at the Rep at Yale. Right. And bringing them to, uh, to ART just to get going. He brought his production of Alvin's, Epstein's production of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream and Andre Belgrader's production of As You Like It. And I uh, came as Rosalind, I not see. knowing a thing about Shakespeare or what I was doing. 
And Marianne Owen and Karen McDonald and Tony Shalhoub and Tommy Dara all took me under their wing. And, you know, I'd say, I have no idea what this means or what Rosalind is saying here. They would, you know, help me parse it and understand. But hadn't you done, um, hadn't you done Shakespeare at Carnegie Mellon? Not really. I, I don't think I ever did even one, one Shakespeare. They just did restoration and what is that, Stanislav? Mikievich and 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 uh, uh, yeah Hoffman's faith, hope, and charity, and you know all of these different things, but no Shakespeare. Wow, interesting. We'll get back to the ART because I have a lot of questions about that. But let's start at the beginning, Paris, Tennessee. The creative dramatics with Miss Ruby Kleider. Is that Kleider? Kleider with an R. And then this sort of jumped out at me. Then at 16, you went to Northwestern? Um, as a cherub in their summer uh, high school speech program. I see. Uh, it was as a six cherub. weeks at, at Northwestern. And that was, the program was called The Cherubs. And so it was a bunch of junior high school students were running around, going from class to class with wonderful professors. Uh, Peter Amster was our movement teacher and and frank galati would pop in to teach us occasionally he was supposed to be there all the time but he, i think he was starring in one flew over the cuckoo's nest at the same time at some theater in chicago he was he was about 26 years old oh when i first met him and skinny as a rail but already turning gray he, he, he was and we knew he was the actor in chicago you know when he would show up we'd already been told he's the he's the man but it was a wonderful incredible experience because it was the first time I was with fellow students from all over the country who wanted the same thing, to have professional careers in the theater. Oh, it was just the best summer. Anytime I had, I would go to the cafeteria because we didn't have any televisions around, but there was a television that they had put in the, the Northwestern cafeteria so people could watch the Watergate hearings. Ooh. And so I would... Uh, I would nip in there and catch as much of them as I could. Oh, so you were uh, you were politically engaged um, from was, a from a young age. There's very little theater better, right? Very. I'm sorry. <laughs> there's there's very little theater that's better than than the the world stage of, <laughs> political of politics. Theater. And yes, yeah. Good for you. So. You go, you go back to to Paris. You go, you go. We'll, we'll always have Paris, and then you um, you end up at at Carnegie Mellon. Was that your first choice, or did you consider uh, Juilliard or Yale or any of the others? Oh, well, Jeff, my grades were terrible. I was. We didn't even take the SATs. We took the ACTs, ironically. Uh, but I'd had this wonderful in high school, this wonderful speech teacher, Linda Wilson. Linda Wilson Miller now, and Linda was uh, just a few years older than than her students, and she just devoted herself to us. And we went to speech tournaments every weekend, and we did plays all the time. And so she really, the speech tournaments helped me almost more than anything, hmm. because uh, I did something called dramatic interpretation, hmm. where you would get up in in front of the judges in a classroom. Uh, and you would do a piece, a two-character scene, and you would have to play both parts. And and you would just change to know that who was 
you know, but you were a different character, we would place our, our eyes just slightly in a different place on the back wall of the classroom. So it made me very comfortable with learning, constantly learning new scenes and new characters and thinking about the motivations and each character and it was really a very strong way to 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 study the art of acting and i first showed at carnegie mellon that summer at northwestern i asked a wonderful professor of mine that summer libby apple where one should go to to schools and she remember she mentioned the university of minnesota and she mentioned i guess because the guthrie was there she mentioned smu and she mentioned carnegie mellon so I think and that's where I, I sent my, my letters, whatever you do to get into college. I don't even remember the process, not having children. But I, I sent my old mediocre scores to Carnegie Mellon, and they wrote back immediately congratulating me on my scores. I, uh, I thought, man, this is the place for me. So you had to audition, and they had auditions in five different cities around the the country so i went back to chicago because it was the closest and i have a lot of friends up there from the summer the summer before so again that was a delight and i auditioned and by george i got in i couldn't believe it yeah i believe it the rest of us believe it cherry well i i didn't believe it when i got that letter i can tell you that much in one of the interviews that i read you mentioned in the course of your four years at Carnegie Mellon, you had a different acting teacher each year, and that each one, you know, was preaching the one true way, which was different from the other one. And so there was Meisner and Grotowski and Stanislavski and Jewel Walker, which I want to get into because I had never heard of Jewel Walker, and I, I looked him up, and it's very interesting. But Tell me about the uh, the Meisner and the Grotowski and the Stanis. I mean, what what did you what did you get out of those folks? I remember the the Meisner in particular because it drove me a little crazy. Our professor was uh, would never have been allowed to teach. Now I don't think. I mean, he would take uh, young women in my class to basically rape scenes. You know, uh, it was uh, really wild. But it was all of that recall, emotional recall of things that had happened in the past, and and I'm using that as emotional springboards. And I realized very quickly that I had always used to my career as a high school speech tournament participant. I'd had such a fortunate life, I couldn't use past anything. I was too young to have a past at that point. And I could very easily, though, just use my imagination to create something or use the future. What I feared the most about the future, the future loss that was inevitable. And the, I've always said that in my work, I've killed off everyone I've ever loved at one point, at one point or another, when I needed a little, a little, uh, a little step up emotionally. It was interesting to be sort of taught one way of working and realize, well, that's not working for me, so I'm going to do it this way. You know, it's so funny because I'm sure I learned a lot at Carnegie Mellon, and I feel sometimes like I'm hard on some of the professors in those years. You know, there were three or four that just rang out, and I just adored. But I, I, I still feel that those years in the high school speech department mm. 
set me up in a way for everything that, that followed so that I could receive whatever these people in college were, whatever I could hold on to and use. And then when I got to, to New York from Carnegie, I mean, there was, at Carnegie, there was a wonderful woman, Liz Orient, who was sort of taught us restoration. Hmm. And and you know how to use the fan and how to use your costume and and we had a wonderful uh, uh, speech teacher Bob Parks who was just a delight and and taught us you know tonal endings and and uh, uh, we had uh, and George who taught us Mid Atlantic you know I remember she said that you know we could never do classical theater with the accent that I arrived with. And I remember leaving her class time and time again, just in tears. I will note that Holly Hunter went to Carnegie Mellon and she didn't have to lose her accent to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's but, carried that with her. She's made she's, that work for her. Yeah, she's done rather well with that back then. Now, she but, uh, and you guys uh, worked opposite each other in succession. I mean, you were... Do you know... And that was the first time when she came to when she came to New York to audition for the the league, the 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 theaters, the league of um, drama training programs. Every year would bring their students to New York to audition. We would do little showcases, and the agents would all come. And that's how you would or would not get an an agent as you were leaving these drama programs. And uh, Holly was two years behind me in school, and. So she came and slept on our on our floor in New York when she was auditioning. But we had never ever worked together. I thought, oh, we should play sisters sometime or something, just because she was the only other Southerner I knew at Carnegie Mellon. Must have been so fun anyway, it was, for you to oh get together. Gosh, it was so much fun. At one point, and you don't see this in succession, but after they arrive on the helicopters, we all drive them up to the estate and I got to drive. I said, I, I think Nan should be driving her own car. You know, it was like a classic waspy, you know, it was like one of those wagoneers uh, from nineteen seventy four with the wood paneling and the blue, you know, it was just this boxy, great old rough terrain car. And Holly and I got in that car. I said, How does this look familiar? Because uh 1974 was when I started at Carnegie, and, mm. and uh, she came along right after. So it was just funny that we were both sitting in this car that was to our vintage. <laughs> and you mentioned Jewel Walker uh, yeah. for, for movement. Tell me about his classes and the work you did with him. Well, he, and I, I was going to bring us back there if you did not, because he was so influential. It was... Um, yeah, very sort of formal training, movement training that I can remember actually in the exercise he gave me when I auditioned because I, that was part of the audition was working with Jewel in the room mm -hmm. uh, where you were to get up from a chair and walk over to a table and pick up the glass and drink from the glass and take a, a, a and put the glass down and then pick up a bit of cracker and eat it and put the cracker down. And that was the audition. Wow. And I was to do it as he had done it. And I remember being fascinated by the specificity. And I realized years later when I, after I was out of, of drama school, that what he taught us, drilled into us without my realizing it, was 
the beauty of the completed action. Obviously, you can't do it in an extreme way where you it looks like that's all you're doing is completing actions. But if you work it in sort of organically to what you're doing, it gives you as a character on stage, and I mentioned in television and the film too, depending, it just gives you this extra heightened, I think it makes people want to watch more. Mm. I don't know how else to put it. And a, a great example of that, that that I've used before is that when I was doing a show on Broadway, this wonderful old chestnut called The Heiress, and I had these gorgeous silk gowns over me, mountains of, of cotton petticoats. But I would come down this staircase and the silk, it would all sort of fill up with, I, I would I moved very quickly down the staircase and my costumes would sort of fill up with air. And then I would go and sit. And she was a very demure character. And I would go and sit and the, the skirt of the gown would slowly fall you know, like like a, a like a balloon deflating a little bit, and I realized that if I would give that costume its due and sit and let the costume completely deflate and then begin the scene or speak or whatever, the audience adored it. I would have cheated them had I not done that. And obviously, there was certain times I couldn't do that, but but uh, when I could, it was. Uh, I enjoyed it, and I, and I know that the audience theme. You have been trained in what we call style, right? How to, how to work mm-hmm. with the fan, how to work with mm-hmm. the gowns, and that whole sense of style. And, and yet you, you bring into that a sense of truthfulness. Is that something that you sort of intuitively knew, or was there somewhere along the line where that was part of your training or that someone said, you know, it's not enough to have the style. You've got to bring yourself and, and the truthfulness into it. I think it was always with me, probably like, like most actors, hit or miss. Mm. We were all sort of aiming for that because certainly as children growing up, there were already very naturalistic performers to admire, whether it was Jimmy Stewart mm. or, you know, with, film you could you could because I didn't grow up getting to go to the theater so those in a way were were my guideposts for what was phony baloney and and what wasn't you just knew in your gut when you meant something and and when you didn't and with uh, certain scripts theater scripts well any script it's you know sometimes it's hard to to get there with if I remember Andre Serba I, I don't Maybe we shouldn't skip ahead, but Andre Chabon was a tremendous influence on me in something as, as formal as Shakespeare, bringing it to a very real place. And one of the ways he, I remember we were rehearsing, and it was the scene where it's, it's the scene where he's coming to speak to Olivia, but Olivia is playing a trick on him because I'm playing, as Viola's playing a boy. She's playing a trick, and she believes that it's a boy. And she has all of the women covered in veils so that he doesn't know which one. He's supposed to be wooing for the Count Orsino, who has sent him this boy there to deliver these messages of love. And then suddenly, 
Olivia's maid, Mariah, her companion, starts making fun of Cesario and really having at him. Andre had me do it one time like I was the cock of the walk. You know, like I was this really cocky boy and wasn't going to take it, you know. And then the, the next time he had me do it another way. And then the, finally he had me do it. He said, now, Chetty, do it as Jesus Christ. How would Jesus Christ do the sing? So I came in much more humble. And, and uh, when Mariah started to dig at me, I started to get hot. And he said, up, 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 up. What would Jesus do? He would turn the other cheek, you know. So that by the time I, I got through with all of that, I had this, this tapestry of, of ways of thinking about this complicated character and what she must be feeling as she's going through this humiliation. And there was something about, I'll never forget, I remember standing in that room um, I think it was over on Porter Square over there when they had that, that mm-hmm. rehearsal hall. And I remember standing there and I was doing the uh, Make Me a Willow Cabin at Your Gate speech. Gorgeous speech that Viola delivers to uh, Olivia. And I was acting. I was acting. And uh, Andre just said, Cherry, stop it. Just say it. Just say it and of course i remember when i just said it the room got quiet and we all went somewhere together and from the words you know just from the and the simplicity of of just saying it and and i remembered the power of that i've never forgotten that moment there was one more and andre would just he he could give you blocking like nobody's business blocking that you you'll you know, and, and sometimes you almost expected him to say, now go, go deliver the speech, stand there on your head. Go stand on your head and deliver the speech. And, you know, it would stay in the show. You know, and, and, you know, he can give you anything. And you could, after working with him for several, you could, you could figure out a way to make it work because it was interesting. And what he was giving you ultimately was helpful. Even if it was standing on your head, mm. it was helpful. And the audience loved it because it was things they'd never seen before. There was a moment when he had Viola in this production be as, as start to fall in love with Olivia as well. She's in love with Orsino and she can't help but be in love with Olivia because Olivia is in love with her thinking she's a boy. So she's getting these it's just incredibly erotic and wonderful for this young woman who's alone on this island and her brother's dead, or so she thinks. Anyway, in this moment where Viola's trying to tell Olivia that she's not as she seems, she can't say she's not a boy, but she wants her to know she's not as she seems. And in doing so, and that I cannot love her, and in doing so, Andre had both of us leaning up against the proscenium, blocking the audience. I was upstage of Diane, she was downstage of me, and we were literally against the edge of the the stage. And I had my hand on her bare back. She had on a lovely black gown, and I had my hand on her back. And you realize he had the audience see the moment when in through my hand, 
which had a, a, a small pin spotlight on it. Viola realizes that she's starting to fall in love with Olivia too. And but from the back of the hand. And it worked. I've never seen that that blocking anywhere before or since. Yeah. It was so bold. Yeah. But he knew just how to focus, focus the moment and make it pop, yeah. you know. And that's what you live for as an actor, those kind of directors that are just, uh, you know, we all have to come into the room 100% ready. And mm-hmm. it, Andre would come in sometimes to an aggravating degree at about a thousand percent. Yeah. Uh, almost too much sometimes. Yeah. Just, you know, like do do a million things and which which kind of breaks you out of all of your assumptions about the character and basically then leaves you stripped away maybe down to yourself <laughs> yeah i'm glad you you talked about him i was going to ask you about um the other folks that you were working with at the AOT that i was aware of because during just in the time that i was there there were we call them the Andres, right? There was Serban, right. also yeah. Belgrader, uh, Belgrader. Uh, do we say Belgrader? Robin, leave you so. Leave you Chule and Bogart. We've spoken about Serban, but especially Chule and Bogart, they were. I think of them as painting very strong stage pictures, right? Mm-hmm. And and. Uh, mm-hmm. th- have you ever worked with Robert Wilson because he's sort of famous? No, but I would I would have loved to have worked with him. Yeah, maybe someday. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's not it's not over. We're not, it's not through the grave yet. It's not over yet because I saw when we did Awaken, which he did. I remember Stephanie Roth played the lead woman in, in when we did Awaken, and it was our first time. I ever saw, and I, I loved Wilson. It's like being in someone else's dream. Mm. <clears throat> but it was that was the first performance I ever saw where she was able to transcend what it was Bob does and make it so real and so honest. And she was a dancer by training uh, as a as a younger girl, and so she had this extraordinary carriage and and. Uh, a beautiful woman and such grace, and she just she was just magnificent. It was a, that was the first time I ever saw someone just really sort of break through the formality of Wilson and mm-hmm. and really make it their own. But I, I hadn't seen that much. I'm sure there are a, a few other actors out there who have ones that he works with in Germany a lot, and mm-hmm. um, and that's what I was. I, gonna... I just want to say, sure. I'm sorry. Well, I just want to say one more thing about. Uh, Servan. We were doing um, The Three Sisters, and it was a gorgeous production. It really was. In 1980, the fall of 82, and um, it, it, it was an exceptional production. And I remember he spent, we spent two weeks in the upstairs at the Globe reading Chekhov's letters and going to see unfinished piece for player piano and uh, Blamov and you know these different Russian films that were playing at that time and it was almost as though by the time we started to approach the text 
we were all so madly in love with Chekhov. And that's literally what it felt like. It felt like we all, he, he educated us to the point that we were all madly in love with, with the man himself. It was so wonderful. Yeah. And when we worked on Platonov, Chule uh, also had us watch Unfinished Piece for Player Piano. Right. Which, um, which, which I had never, never seen before. And it does give you that sense of saturation in that world, in that mm -hmm. life. I mean, it's such a brilliant movie. Um, yeah. And, but that's what I, what I was going to ask you about was when you have a director that is kind of leaving you to your own devices in terms of finding the truth, because mm -hmm. they're more, more interested in creating the stage picture. Mm -hmm. uh, did those folks, Anne Bogart, for instance, uh, when you worked on Life is a Dream, did she spend any time with you on your inner life or did she just know that you were going to be able to get there on your own? It's terrible. I don't remember. It's honestly. not surprising. It's a long time I ago. It's not only that, but I was doing five major roles a season and I... <laughs> I didn't know if I was coming or going half the time. When I was doing Twelfth Night, we were rehearsing Major Barber. I was playing Major Barber. We were doing, you know, so there's a lot that sort of and Platonov. I don't remember at all. I, that was not. I that was not the role for me. I didn't really particularly enjoy it. I loved Livio Chule and I loved his wife. And I, you know, I, I, but I just and and Chris Jones, who I I played opposite, but I just that that one sort of flew past me. I don't even remember it. Uh, life is a dream I remember being uh, fascinated by because it was so highly stylized in every way from our, you know, our makeup to our costumes to our, and would have us do things. Uh, like I don't know if, if you remember this, but she had us, um, there was, I used to call it the Great Divide in the Lobo Theater. There was the aisle that everyone entered the theater and then you either went to the lower seating the yes. sort of below the stage level or you went up into the from that center aisle when you would walk in and it was a, a horizontal aisle a kind of moat she had a board a, a plank a board that went from that moat <laughs> that went over the lower audience's shoulders and heads to the stage mm. and that was how the play began and Derek Smith and I were on this plane and to make bad matters worse there were cleave lights from the wings shooting straight at us like these rows of the most brilliant light so you couldn't even see <laughs> and the board was nine inches and we literally, at one point, we had to trade places <laughs> on the board. And it was wonderful, and it was it must have been beautiful to look at, resting. And, but finally, I just saw writing on the wall, and I, I went to Rob Orcher. I said, Rob, this cannot stand. I said, the minute one of us steps off into the lap, of an elderly woman who's just had a hip replacement. <laughs> it's not going to be pretty. So we got a slightly larger plank. 
but it was so fantastic to uh it was so physical and so otherworldly uh that that production working with Anne. I, I I greatly enjoyed it, but I don't remember a lot of acting notes. <laughs> There's an idea that I read in in a wonderful book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers, where he basically starts with this premise that some of the most brilliant artists and and accomplished artists share the uh, the fact that they had ten thousand hours of experience to get them to where they were. A couple of the example are the Beatles in Hamburg. Bill Gates had this experience of coding the 10,000 hours. And when I think of you um, at the ART in the 10 years, almost 10 years that you were in the company, and you just talked about there you are doing six shows, basically juggling six shows in your head at once. It sounds to me like that was your 10,000 hours experience where when you at the other end of that, you you had it. I remember because I guess my my final season of that kind of intense. Uh, I took a couple of seasons off, but basically I was there for the most part all of the eighties. And I remember um, I think I was thirty three or thirty four when I I left after that run of years, and I felt ready to hang out my shingle as an actor. I never had before. If I was on the plane talking to some nice person next to me, like we used to do in the old days on planes, um, or I used to, they would always, you know, say, "What do you do?" And I, I, I couldn't bring myself to say I was an actor because mm-hmm. I didn't feel, I don't know, I couldn't bring myself to say it. But after all those years at the ART, I could, and not only could I say it, I had. I had so many different wonderful tools that I could draw on. But like you say, mostly, you know, banking those 10,000 hours, there's nothing like it. As, as I think it's, this is not quite the right uh, analogy, but I, it's Olivier Hoke who always says, it's not how well you know a part, it's how long. <laughs> Honestly, I've always thought that had I not gotten into that company, I would never have worked as an actor because I would fall apart for auditions. I, I could not audition. I couldn't audition today if I had to. Well, maybe I could today because I have less to prove. <laughs> but I couldn't as a kid out of college. And I would just, I would shake. And I couldn't bear having one shot right. because I'm slow. I'm slow to a character. I just, I, I just couldn't, couldn't do it. And I and I lost one job after another. I still can't believe it was it was Belgrader, Andre Belgrader who brought me up to ART. Oh. I was the last girl to audition for Rosalind. He hadn't found her, and for whatever reason, I think it was desperation. He hired me, and I remember I left the room, and the casting director Debbie Brown said, "Cherry, could you just wait a minute outside?" And I did, and she came out, and she said, "This was in New York." And she said, can you be in Boston tomorrow by 3 p.m.? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. I was going to ask. I'd never done Shakespeare, wow. you know, so. And Rosalind. Oh, my God. That's the and role. Rosalind. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I was going to ask you, how how did your inclusion in the ART come about? And I And I was thinking that 
Bob Brustein must have spotted you, but no, it was it was there was um, nowhere to spot me. It was, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then once you were there, was there a, a point at which Bob, when you were doing that, Bob said, "I want you to stick around and and stay as a member of the company." Yes, I had done a season at the Brooklyn Academy of Music Theater Company, and then I went from that and did. As you like it, and then I thought that was going to be it, and then Bob called me and said, "Hello, darling," <laughs> and and he told me that that they would love for me to come be part of the company, and that the next summer they were going to be touring Europe, and I just stuck with you know believe my good fortune. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you hit the jackpot. I really did, and I. I, I wish there were rep companies all over this country still because there's no better way right. to learn at least theater performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I heard you speak about, you know, how dumb some of the stuff is on TV that that you've participated in, right? I'm um, just say, yeah, I show up and, and, and look serious and, and say, keep me apprised and all of all of that stuff, but I, but I had a good time. Of course, you time. did, and 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 that was a miracle because my parents were, you know, that allowed me time to be able to get home to yes. Tennessee, where the theater would not. But one of the things the, of the TV things that you've done and that you've done mm-hmm. recently, which I watched and uh, I really, really enjoyed, was um, the Five Days at Memorial. Well, I'm so glad you saw that. Yeah, so which you have. Yeah, well, you know, I know why because it's so difficult to watch. It is yeah. it's it's excruciating, but the question that I wanted to ask you about that was have you ever been called upon to express so much anxiety and emotion in theater or uh on film? I mean, I found the scene with your mother that starts with you it's after the initial hurricane and she comes to give you a back rub and you brush her away and and your face just crumples you know you're just overcome with emotion it was excruciating to watch and also exquisite oh everybody's spreading rumors afraid of things that aren't there 2,000 people in this hospital, and I had to take care of all of them. Every one of them. You did take care of them. You got 2,000 people through the storm. (laughs) If you want the truth, that's the truth. You did that. You did that. Can you tell me what that was like to shoot? Well, it was one of the great experiences of my life, working with that group of people. And uh, we were sequestered in Toronto because the borders were closed because of COVID. So once we got in, we had to stay in. And so it allowed us to really get to know each other because we were there for four months. And um, I so admire uh, Sherry Fink, who wrote the book, she won the Pulitzer for her ProPublica 
uh, long-form article about Baptist Memorial Hospital in New Orleans, which was uh, under nine feet of flood water once the levees broke. Katrina blew through and they survived with, with no real damage to speak of. And then the levees broke and then all of New Orleans was under that much water. And it's not that long ago, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago, but people just don't know about it. I mean, I, I think New Orleans lost almost half of its population after that hurricane. Well, we're going to have to contend with more and more and more in terms of climate. It's about our, our healthcare workers who are stressed to the max because uh, there are not enough of them. They don't get enough respect. And they're now our, like our frontline soldiers, whether it's mass shootings or hurricanes or floods or fires or, you know, or, or pandemics, you know. We felt that we had a real obvious thing, responsibility to the actual people that we were playing because that's complicated because it's dramatized. I did not play the woman Susan Mulderick, the actual woman. I played a dramatization of her. And I remember that scene that you talk about, it said in the script that she she sort of loses it. And after this, the pressure of seeing the hospital through this hurricane, because she was the incident commander for that weekend, drew the short straw and was the incident commander for this horrible event. I remember saying to Carlton and, and John Ridley, I said, you know, Carlton Cunes, who was the showrunner, learning all these terms. I said, I, it's a little early for her to lose it, isn't it? Uh, and, and for her to cry, I'm just not sure from what I know about this woman. And he said, just imagine the pressure of getting 2,000 people through a hurricane. It was all your responsibility. And you managed to do it. And the relief of that and the stress, the release and I said, but there's so much more to come. And he said, that's right. So to see her this sort of emotionally spent at the end of the first leg of this horrible five days showed you how much pressure she was under in the next four days. And so it was an interesting thing to have done. And, and I didn't agree with it at first, but then I, I came to appreciate it too. <laughs> well, you, you executed it brilliantly. Um, I mean, you really did release that. Well, that actress that I was playing with was lovely too, the, my mama. Yeah, the woman who played your, your mother, your mama. Yeah. 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 You, well, you mentioned it um, today that, you know, when you were young, you know, the whole concept of emotional memory was a little uh, foreign because you hadn't lived long enough to have, and you had a, a happy childhood and you hadn't had yeah. In your life, of course. Now we're we're older, and we we have had more traumatic experiences. Um, do you find now that that you do tap into emotional memories that help you out, um, or are you still more in the imagination space of uh, finding that? I'll use my imagination, and yes, I now have things in my past that I can use. I still have plenty of things in my future that I can use, but I used my imagination intermingled with those things mm. uh, 
to get to get that springboard. Mm. And it's so interesting the way it works. Um, say I need to be highly emotional about something. So say I put someone I love through a terrible accident that I see, which has nothing to do with the scene and where I have to go as the actor. But it it immediately makes me so emotional that I can then pivot and use it as a character. It's such an interesting thing that happens in an actor's brain that you can be so specific in your mind and your heart in one direction and then go and put it, you know, where it needs to be for the character you're playing. I love that. Yeah. And and I remember when I was doing that Three Sisters with Andre Serban, there's there was a scene where young Arena says, I can no longer remember the Italian pursuit. And she's she's sobbing. She's she's having a little bit of a breakdown. And I could do it so easily all through rehearsals. It was no problem. And then I got onto the Loeb stage in front of the audience, and I just tried. I had no more uh, emotion left. And Andre was driving him crazy. He said, you were so good in rehearsal. You know, what, what, what's happened? I said, I don't know. I've never had this happen before. Because I didn't even have to create anything. I was so in tune with, with the arena that it made me sad what she was going through. And I remember I told this to my mother. And my mother said, well, darling, maybe you've grieved over it all you can. Mm. And I thought, oh, my God, that's right. That I have now spent as many tears over this as I possibly can. So then I realized then, oh, so I've got to come up with something else. And, and I found it long runs, like when I was doing the errors. I had something that I could use all the time to set me off. And then it would lessen. And it didn't work anymore. So then I'd have to audition a couple of other horrible things to use <laughs> and find the right one to get you. But it's so interesting, all of that. Wow. But what a challenge, you know, for the actor to constantly be sort of mining the experiences and. I know it's just incredible when you watch all these wonderful actors just have these scenes where they they have to be so wildly emotional, but it's so they make it so unique to the character. I just love to watch. I love to watch actors, but I love to watch actors who know how to make things so uh, unique and specific that way uh, that are highly charged. I'm about to have to do a, a, an emotional scene rather than thinking about the right, you know, <laughs> right send-off. <laughs> I just have one more question. You know, when you do a long run, and I know you did, uh, was it was it Glass or was it Eris where you did 700-plus performances doing it on? That was, that was Doubt. Oh, Doubt. I'm sorry. Yeah, Doubt. Yeah. So, so there you are in performance number, you know, 675, right? And you're getting ready to go on. Do you think of that as, okay, the plane is at the end of the runway about to take off. How do you approach that? Is that just like another, okay, I have one, another shot to get this right? Uh, yes, that's exactly how. And, and I'm wondering, I have a wonderful, um, some people in other professions would call it a disability, but as an actor, I really don't know what comes next. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm not kidding, Jim. 
it's literally, I go out there and I, I don't know what the other actor's going to say to me. You know, I mean, I, it's a, it's a weird thing, but I, I, uh, it's a blessing, it, Cherry. <laughs> it is a blessing. It keeps me from being able to anticipate what the other actor is about to say. But I remember we had been touring all over because we, we did it out off Broadway, on Broadway, and then we took out a national tour and played 23 sittings over the course of nine or 10 months, which I would never do again. That was rough after a while. We were in Minneapolis, Minnesota. There was, it was the first really small, beautiful, gorgeous, older theater that we'd been in. We'd been playing these huge, massive barns with thousands of seats, usually empty. And, uh, uh, but here we were, and the theater was jam-packed full of people, and there was a blizzard going on. So they really wanted to be there. And I had uh, a, a friend there who had seen it many, many times. Uh, in its different s stages. And we went out there that night, the four of us. And when we came off, this was like number 654, we came off that stage and we knew that was the one. Mm -hmm. Of all the these performances, that was the one. Mm -hmm. And we all felt it. It was like everyone's muse had shown up on that night. And my friend came backstage and said, my God, that was the one. <laughs> that was the one to see. And, and it's funny how that happens. You just keep refining and refining. And when I say refining, because sometimes in refining, you're, you're actually making it more Baroque and you don't know it. Sometimes you can, I remember Jerry Gutierrez, when I was doing the heiress, came backstage once and he said, I had won the Tony for it. Maybe I was, you know, feeling sassy. I don't know. But I had a line that I would say at the end of the play, to, towards the end of the play, to my aunt, let us have some lemonade. And he came backstage and he said, it now sounds like when you say that line that you have Barbara Stanwyck with her hand on her hip in your throat. <laughs> And I thought I'd been simplified, simplified it. So it's it's good when your directors come back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things that drove me crazy when I, as a director, I love giving notes in performance. And I remember I was working somewhere and, and some stage manager or somebody came up to me and they said, you're not allowed to give notes anymore. It's, it's, it's illegal. I was like, no, 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 no. Anyway, I think I've always ignored that rule. I think the only time stage managers probably say anything is if there's someone in the company who just says, I, I don't want any more notes. I'm oh, sorry. But I'm not one of those actors. I want notes till the fat lady sings. Yeah. Yeah. No, indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, Cherry, thank you so much. This, is, this has been so great. Gurus, the Story of Acting was written by me, Jeff Zinn, and is produced by Dwight Street Book Club, Rollin Jones, Adam O'Byrne, Tony Manna, and Nicholas Hassong with help from Mary Seidel. Music, editing, and mixing are by Jay Hagenbuckle. Very special thanks to Brendan Hughes. For a complete list of sources, including books, articles, and other podcasts, and a treasure trove of images, visit our website, storyofacting.com. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.